I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. And this week we're talking to the geopolitics scholar Klaus Dodds and the journalist Rachel Halliburton about the battle for the Arctic. As temperatures rise and ice melts, profitable new shipping routes are opening up and the big nations are watching and waiting. Klaus and Rachel wrote an essay on the new geopolitical battle, we could call it the very Cold War, in this month's issue of Prospect. The emerging tussle amid the creaking ice is scary enough, but more terrifying, they argue, is that it will distract us from the environmental catastrophe that could soon sink all of humanity. Um, first of all, then, I'm going to ask each of you, Klaus, first, how you got interested in matters polar? So my, my interest in, in the uh, polar regions actually really started in the Antarctic. And that's where I, I did much of my PhD research, uh, looking at the, the conflictual relationship between Britain, Argentina and Chile. And uh, working in the early 1990s, around about the 10th anniversary of the Falklands Malvinas conflict, it was still quite a difficult subject actually to cover. And I do, I do remember spending quite a few months in Argentina and uh, you know, the situation still feeling very, very raw as the country came to terms, uh, not only with defeat, but also an extraordinary democratic transformation. And then the Arctic interests actually occurred far later. And I think probably a real pivot was the moment a Russian flag was placed gently on the bottom of the Central Arctic Ocean seabed. And that really, I think, catalyzed a long-standing interest in thinking about the Arctic, both separately, but also where it made sense to comparatively. How interesting, because Rachel, I think you've also been involved with some sort of Antarctic conference or festival or something, haven't you? Yes, uh, that, that's right. And uh, again, I, like, like Klaus, that, that is more where my polar interests lie. I organised a festival in January uh, looking at every sort of possible aspect of the Antarctic. And it, it is extraordinary when you look at this, you know, huge landmass in detail. You, you had the uh, extraordinary space research that happens there because the climate is more like conditions on Mars and indeed on the moon than anywhere else in the world. You have the field of 
ice memory. You know, scientists who will drill you know, tubes which are sort of thousands of feet long, and uh, from there, the ice bubbles trapped in the ice can see what was in the atmosphere hundreds of thousands of years ago. There was uh, equally simply looking at you know, beyond the scientific research that happens there, looking at the extraordinary revolution in architecture that happened, has happened there since the British Antarctic Survey Base was redesigned at uh, Halley 6. So, and, and the Antarctic is a very different proposition from the Arctic in lots of ways, because the Antarctic is a landmass, is a continent, whereas the Arctic is basically an, an ocean basin with several territories jutting into it. But I have been to, I have visited the Arctic. I visited it three years ago. I went to Baffin Island to Iqaluit, first to Iqaluit and then to Pond Inlet. And what really struck me was going to visit an Inuit community there. Why, what a tough proposition it is to carve out an existence in the Arctic. I so, uh, Charles and I have talked a bit about the, the tendency to romanticise the Arctic and what happens there. But what shocked me when I was reading about the community was, in fact, to realise quite how high substance abuse was, uh, children born with fetal alcohol syndrome, unemployment, suicide rates and then just the kind of the fact of landing on this tiny dirt airstrip in Pond Inlet and realizing that that is the only way any food comes in. So not only are you living in a very difficult environment but then all the food is about twice as expensive as it is anywhere else. So it's, it's, it's a really very hard existence and um, I, was, I was quite shocked by how much that resonated with me. Yeah, and so that gives a feel, doesn't it, I think, for why there's so much pressure of horses, because there's a lot of people who are very close to the edge, which is something your essay alludes to. But these tensions over minerals, and of course you talk about the difference between the landed continent of the Antarctic and the frozen non-continent of the Arctic, but in both places, you know, going back to the time of Scott of the Antarctic, th th there's been an interest, there's been a tussle over minerals and resources, bits of Antarctic claimed, um, you know, in a kind of just-in-case way and Svalbard and places like that. There's been mining for a long time, Klaus, hasn't there? But the thing I think that you highlight as new now is that it's not just a tussle over mineral resources or, you know, places that might be good to have just in case they're useful for minerals, but also as a way of navigating the world. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's right. I mean, I, I think if you think about the sort of the human history of both the Arctic and the Antarctic, I mean, they're clearly very different. You know, as Rachel said, the Arctic has a human history that go, goes back thousands, thousands of years. But one of the things that's really striking, and I think we can probably call this the sort of colonial encounter, is that really over the last 500 years, outsiders in particular, have come into both the Arctic and more latterly the Antarctic and seen these places as sort of resource frontiers. And what you see over and over again in both the Arctic and the Antarctic are these kind of resource rushes. You know, we have these extraordinary moments where seals, whales, minerals, whether it's coal, whether it's uranium, oil, gas, are extracted and then taken away for the benefit of communities, states, empires elsewhere. And alongside that, there've been lots of predictions and visions put forward in terms of how the Arctic and the Antarctic can become ever more integrated and connected, not only with empires and states, but also with the world economy. 
And what often gets lost from this picture, as Rachel's alluded, is actually those who call the Arctic home in particular, many of whom will be living lives that would be truly shocking, I think, if residents in, for example, Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, actually were to see some of some of the living conditions firsthand. So that's the sort of the, the, the familiar bit of the Arctic tussle. But then, Rachel, it's this business about being able to break through the ice, which is really ramping the politics up, isn't it? And whilst you were writing this article, middle, middle of the way through it, the eyes of the world were suddenly on sewers, weren't there? Which after a, a, a boat blocked that. And now I read we have a shortage of garden gnomes in garden centres, which just shows you how these transcontinental points make such a big difference to our world in, in sometimes bizarre ways. But but the Arctic could be the next big one, right? Yes, but I obviously and we have that and we have the tension that by exploiting these shipping lanes, you know, they are endangering the climate of the world. And uh, one of the things that um, is fascinates me is that both China and Russia, who are you know at the forefront of explo exploiting these new transport routes, um, are finding themselves very directly uh, implicated by what's ch changing in the Arctic. So, for instance. Um, with China, the, the loss of sea ice uh, and the altered wind circulation in the Arctic, it, it contributed directly to China's airpocalypse in 2013, it, when it was shown that the air pollution was such that it was directly causing cancer. And uh, scientists are clear that the ever-warming Arctic is going to continue to have these kind of severe effects on China. Um, similarly with, with Russia, the, the June floods near Russia's border with China in 2019, it's been, uh, it's, it's been estimated it cost them more than $460 million. And uh, so, so you, know, you, you have got this sort of notion that the, the Russia and China are, I mean, I mean, a lot of nations are looking to exploit this, but Russia and China are at the forefront. And yet they are suffering very directly as a result of the very conditions which are allowing them to exploit this. Yeah, and, and then you talk um, very powerfully in the piece about, you know, how trouble in the Arctic's weather system is linked to tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever as far away as Texas. But just focusing, Klaus, on these shipping lanes, you mentioned three, the Northwest Passage, the Northern Sea Route and the Transpolar sea route. Are all of these three new with the melting ice or were some of them kind of quite familiar been in use for a long time? So I, I think the one that probably most listeners will be familiar with is probably the fabled Northwest Passage. So that was the passage that European explorers famously imagined and indeed hoped to navigate through at the, to at the top, if you will, of the North American continent. In other words, you know, there was hope there would be this sort of oceanic passageway that would connect Europe to Asia and it would offer an alternative to sort of over overland travel. So John Franklin uh, and his expedition in the mid 19th century, famously, of course, uh, came stuck in the ice and then perished. Uh, and a great deal of sort of mystery and intrigue followed thereafter. But that's, that's the one we probably know best, at least certainly within Britain and, and I suspect Europe. Of course, the Northwest Passage is terrifically important to modern day Canada that has a very, very strong proprietorial interest in making sure that uh, those who transit through the Northwest Passage are carefully watched and regulated. 
During the Cold War, of course, it was quite common for American and British submarines to travel in and around that area. The Northern Sea Route runs atop of uh, Russia, in effect, and it really takes significance in the Stalin era. So in the 1920s and 30s, Joseph Stalin saw the Northern Sea Route as an essential passageway to the future economic and political security of the USSR. And President Putin very much shares that vision that Russia's enormous north is in a sense integral to the future of the Russian Federation and the Northern Sea Route is an important passageway. And that gets used uh, increasingly in the last 20, 30 years with some notable firsts being achieved such as uh, transiting uh, during winter time. Uh, and that's happened just very recently, which gives you an indication. The third and final one, the transpolar route is the most speculative. This is the one that would run through the center of the Arctic Ocean. And if it became um, accessible, as we expect in the 2030s, 40s, 50s onwards, it would absolutely reveal once, uh, sort of finally, I suppose, uh, quite how far the Arctic Ocean has changed from a frozen desert to a polar Mediterranean. So, and, and that one is very important, I guess, for trade, because it's giving you a way, as to some extent they all are, between, between the Arctic and the Pacific directly. So it could, for example, if I read you right, have a big effect uh, on trade between China and the rest of the world, which is you know, the single biggest movement within trade, I guess, globally. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the ways to think about the transpolar route is it's not only a stunning, in a sense, example of how far the world has changed, if you like, environmentally, in terms of the state of the Arctic Ocean, but also if you if you could imagine, if, you know, a, a globe and you trace perhaps with your finger a pathway across the centre of the Arctic Ocean, you would also quickly discover that actually where, where it runs, you're outside, for example, the territorial seas and you're in international waters. And what that means is for ships that want to use the Northern Sea Route, you have the Russian presence never far away from you. You know, for example, you'll have a Russian icebreaker supporting you. You'll have to pay Russian transit fees if you want to use the Northern Sea Route. Ditto, of course, you have to pay transit fees if you want to use the Suez Canal. The point about the transpolar route is it runs through international waters. In other words, you are outside of that state control. It's a very, very attractive prospect to China and others who don't want to be in the grip of Russia. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Crikey. And so final thing on this is, do you think it's, should we think of it as a symptom of environmental degradation? Or is the mere fact of sending these icebreakers that people are building and that you talk about going deeper and deeper into the winter, does that actually degrade and ruin the local ecology itself? Or is it really just that the ice is melting because of climate change and it's just a symptom? I think it's, a, it's a, as always, it's a double-edged affair. So for example, this is true across the Arctic. Indigenous peoples, northern communities are not anti-economic uh, industrial development per se. You know, they're not anti-shipping, for example. A lot of this activity, including shipping, generates economic opportunities, generates employment, and helps to make northern communities sustainable. That is true as much of the Russian Arctic as it is, for example, in Greenland and the rest of the North American Arctic. I think what it often reveals, however, is trade-offs. You know, whether, for example, you want to see more shipping and trade come past, for example, the northern, northern Russian coastline, well, for President Putin, the answer is yes. But on the other hand, for environmentalists, often they're quick to warn that if you have a shipping disaster, you know, let alone if you have uh, some kind of oil or gas disaster, then in the Arctic, the scale and the extent of that damage really makes itself felt because we often have an absence, for example, of search and rescue, and we don't have the same kind of infrastructural thickness that we could take for granted in lower latitudes. So again, these are often painful trade-offs where environmental change not only brings dangers, but it also brings unwittingly opportunities for more things to happen, including shipping which of course would uh, ameliorate potentially, Rachel, some of the problems you were talking about of those local communities if there were more opportunities. But um, yes. can I just bring you to the, the sort of wider geopolitics, um, Rachel? Because one of the things, there's a, I can't remember, the Arctic Circle of the, 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 the states, the Arctic Council, the Canada's, the US and Russia, who have territory there. But one of the fascinating things in your article is these big powers like India and China now defining themselves as near Arctic. Yes, and uh, obviously kind of the way that uh, China is, is, is playing its hand. I mean, we, we talked a, a little bit about, well, we, we talked a lot about militarization of the Arctic, but I think China, the card it's really trying to play is, is, is asserting itself as part of the, the epistemic community, asserting itself as helping with scientific research and, and also indeed with looking at climate issues. I think it's, it's quite interesting that, so obviously under the Biden administration, John, John Kerry is the, um, the special climate envoy 
And China, as in response, appointed their veteran climate expert, Xie Shenhua, and he has a personal relationship with Kerry. And so, you know, even though there are hostilities of, between uh, America and China in the region, um, many China analysts actually see that particular appointment as a sign that there could be a, a, a productive bilateral relationship. That's interesting, isn't it? And I mean, do you feel optimistic that there is this kind of talk now? Could you see much in your article about, you know, uh, the sort of very showy, everything from kind of nuclear submarines to husky dogs on parade kind of being used to assert, you know, rival national power in the in the region. But do you think, Rachel, we might be at a moment where that could be transcended in terms of like, let's do something for humanity as a whole or we're all going to we're all going to sink? Yeah, well, I mean, are you are you optimistic? I, I think I think it is, um, you know, for, for reasons I was saying earlier, it is it is obviously very much in everyone's interest to work together to save humanity. And I mean, the the, the militarization story is striking because it is developing so fast. Uh, you know, I was just reading this week that uh, next summer the nuclear-powered torpedo Poseidon 2M39, which is nicknamed the Doomsday Nuke, will reach the Arctic. It has a range of 10,000 kilometers and it's designed to detonate off the coastline of enemy cities, flooding them with radioactive waves. But I mean, as both Klaus and I concluded when we were discussing this, this is, it, it is a sort of show <laughs> that they're putting on it. It's, it, it is a show and the, the greater aim is to exploit resources. But the fact is, if, you know, as Russia is doing, you are setting up huge oil extraction projects and, and um, liquid na liquefied natural gas projects, but you are having to pay a billion pounds in terms of the climate impacts on your country, at some point you are going to have to strike a balance. Yeah, and so one thing that might be rather important, Klaus, in where all this lands, I guess, is the local politics of the communities that live in the in the Arctic. You talk in the piece about a recent um, a Greenland election, which I think was pending when you wrote it, but has now probably taken place, uh, which was very much about how far or not you wanted foreign investment and exploitation and that trade-off that you're talking about. Do you know how that landed? Yes, so so um, the the election itself was was held in, in early April, and what was interesting was that the governing party Simut came came second, and a new uh, leader called Egde ha has actually become uh, and his party have become the sort of the dominant uh, element in Greenlandic politics, and and like most elections, there's going to be some kind of coalition that will uh, emerge from all of this. But I think the key thing really that comes out of the election result was that the winning party was very, very explicit in terms of putting a, a moratorium on mining and was far more cautious compared to the former ruling party in terms of uh, whether mining should always be supported because it was seen as integral to future economic and political well-being. And I, I guess what you're sort of having here uh, in Greenland is, is a sort of very, at times raw, but certainly live conversation about how the country imagines its future going forward. And in essence, what you, you're sort of looking at is really, in a sense, two models, whether there's a, a cautious model where Greenland begins to internationalize further using, of course, all the obvious sectors at its disposal, but mindful of the fact that the pandemic, for example, has devastated tourism, or else whether you go, in essence, hell for leather, 
and say, right, mining is absolutely integral to an independent Greenland. And that's the way we get ourselves off dependency on Denmark, which, of course, uh, to this day, still continues to contribute substantially through the so-called block grant to Greenland's economy. But there are certain kinds of facts of life that we just can't duck in all of this. You know, there are only 56,000 people in Greenland. So the, if, you know, what one might call the human capital is pretty modest. And the other thing, of course, and Donald Trump's comments uh, famously in 2019 captured something of this, Greenland is, is an area of strategic interest to both China and the US. So one of the things that all Greenlandic politicians are quite keen to try and do is find a way to navigate competing interests from China, from the US, and of course from Denmark. And can you turn that into some kind of strategic advantage? That's the big debate for Greenland going forward. I mean, I'm finding this conversation relatively encouraging, I guess, because Obviously, like where we go is going to depend on politics. But with what Rachel's saying and what you've said there about the local Greenland politics and, you know, people very much on the, on, on the front line of all of this because of where they live, is that, you know, countries, communities that a year or two ago we might have worried were always going to put local or national interests first are now, like, maybe working towards a more enlightened self-interest where the ecology does get something of a look in, whether it's at the level of international relations or the level of um, like a Greenland local election. Am, am I being naive, do you think, Rachel? Um, no, and, and I think one of the particularly interesting countries to look at is, is Canada here and the conversation that it is having on the Arctic. And uh, one of the questions is about the kind of the, the, the structures within which the conversations are had. And that maybe it's now time for a, a cabinet committee specifically devoted um, to the Arctic. Because obviously, you know, when you're, as this conversation has shown, it brings together so many different issues, uh, economic issues, social issues, environmental security concerns. And uh, right now the worry within Canada is that there isn't any organization which actually oversees all of those. But, and, and so it is now working towards creating that kind of structure so it can have that kind of debate, which will balance off in indigenous concerns against, yes, more, more international concerns. So that sounds encouraging, but Klaus, if we want to do the dark side of it, I guess we probably, reading your um, essay, come back to Russia, where in the grand geostrategic planning around this East Siberian sea route and the associated mining projects and new ports and so on, I suspect the environment doesn't get as much of a look in as we might like. I think, to be perfectly honest, I, I wouldn't wouldn't always focus my attention on Russia and identify them as the sort of the, the, the worst element here. I think the key thing I would say is to bear in mind is that many of the Arctic states are fundamentally mining economies or they're extractive economies. You know, even if you take a country like Norway, for example, that often prides itself on its green credentials, you know, that, for example, so much of its domestic energy comes from hydroelectric or renewables or whatever, then it's important to bear in mind that, of course, so much of its export earnings come from oil and gas, and there is still an appetite to extract gas and oil from offshore Norway, whether it's the Norwegian Sea or whether it's up in the Barents Sea to the north of the country. 
Canada, Russia, Finland, Norway, you know, they, they all mine. They are mining economies. Alaska is an extractive economy. So this is something that runs across the Arctic. And again, just to reiterate the point, northern communities are not anti-mining. They're not anti-extraction. What they really want is consultation and they want to have agreements that ensure that revenue is shared fairly between local and northern communities and uh, nation states. So in essence, I think what, again, what the Arctic reveals is really a, a kind of a global as well as circumpolar paradox, which is we know uh, oil and gas really needs to stay in the ground if we're to take seriously immediate energy transition. But on the other hand, it also means that communities in the Arctic will be disproportionately affected in terms of those employment and life enhancing opportunities. And that's true of Russia as it's true of Greenland. Right, a final word now, Rachel, from you on what, uh, in the final chunk of your essay, we kind of call the, uh, the, the Northern Lights, where you talk about these extraordinary kind of Arctic assemblies, the growing tourism, you've got the Singaporean Arctic ambassador arriving in the morning at some conference or other, Nicola Sturgeon speaking in the afternoon. If you try and make yourself as cheerful as possible, can you see a kind of more sustainable future for the Arctic that does balance all of these and save the rest of us in the process? You know, that there is some sort of sustainable tourism, there is future of maybe the tech industries and other things. So people can live there and it can go on, but uh, without relying on um, uh, mining that's damaging the ecology and indeed the cracking of the ice that's keeping the sea levels manageable everywhere. Yes, well, I, I should by, by, by the way emphasize it was Klaus who was attending the conferences, but um, for my own visit to uh, Iqaluit, yes, I was struck by the, the huge optimism uh, being uh, demonstrated by the, the younger generation there. Um, you know, it, it very often it's seen that young people with any prospects will migrate uh, further down in Canada or, or elsewhere in the world. Um, and suddenly uh, the prospect of more visitors arriving uh, has, uh, has raised all sorts of opportunity in, in heli skiing or in, in wildlife observation. Uh, uh, the kind of restaurants and hotels they can set up, um, you know, so, so suddenly you were aware that the community wasn't facing the fact it was going to be losing the brightest and the fittest of its members when they reached a certain age. You know, whether this balance is, you know, can, can be balanced with generally saving the Arctic? Well, I, I think yes. I mean, if you want to attract people to a region uh, in order to, you know, look at its, its, its wildlife, then uh, you know, obviously I think it's uh, within your interest to make sure that that kind of tourism is, is eco-friendly. Brilliant. Well, that is a hopeful note on which to say that's all for from us for this time. Thank you for joining us, Klaus and uh, Rachel. Uh, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. You can read Rachel and Klaus's essay in the May issue of Prospect, which is on newsstands if you can find an open one, or you can uh, look it up online, headline the battle for the Arctic at prospectmagazine.co.uk. If you're new to the site, you'll then be able to read it for free, but you will also find a tempting subscribe button with extremely reasonable rates for unlimited access. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. In the meantime, Time. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>